Okay. Um, yeah. So we are recording this. Um, we're recording this. So if you don't want to uh, to appear, please turn off your your cameras. Uh, so welcome everyone. I'm uh, Paolo Drinot. I'm going to be hosting this event, uh, and it's really great that we can launch uh, Nat's book uh, this evening. So. As you know, the book is titled Soldiers, Saints and Shamans, Good Alliteration, uh, Indigenous Communities and the Revolutionary State in Mexico's Gran Nayar, 1910 to 1940. It's published by the University of Arizona Press and just came out this year, right? Um, and so to discuss the book, we have uh, Ben Smith of the University of Warwick and Julie Gibbings of the University of Edinburgh. Uh, and the structure is that we'll start with a presentation by Nat of the book and then hand over to Julie and then to Ben, who I think is in the room but is looks like he's having a few problems with um, Zoom. I hope he'll sort them out. Oh, there he is. There he is. Good. Okay. Uh, good. So I think we can start. Uh, Nat, over to you. Well, um, thank you very much for that introduction um, and thank you and uh, everyone else uh, who has virtually turned up for this um, slightly strange pandemic book launch. Um, it would be nice if we were all in a room together, but um, yeah, Zoom is the next best thing and it does mean that illustrious guests uh, from all over the world can be tuned in. Um, so yeah, looking on the bright side of things. Um, so yeah, I, uh, I wrote a book. It's my first book. Um, I'm quite pleased with it. And um, yeah, it, it feels weird not to have been able to do like a, a, a proper kind of event. Um, but, but this is going to be, yeah. A good, a good way of, of kind of christening it and bringing it into the world as an object. Um, so the book is there, although it looks backwards in my screen. Um, you can buy a copy uh, from the University of Arizona Press or Amazon or WH Smith or, or wherever, you know, it's, it's about. Um, and it's the product of a huge amount of time researching um, in the archives and also in the field. Um, it seems slightly mad to me that it's only come out now when, um, yeah, I started it kind of all the research that has become the book nearly a decade ago. Um, but I guess that's the way of academia and it's, um, yeah, you know, it's like a slow process um but hopefully the results are good and um will stand up for a while so just a little bit of kind of background um starting with the most basic background possible if sharing this screen works um uh, Uh, okay, sharing the screen doesn't quite appear to be working on my computer. Um, but 
the most basic things first. Um, this book is about the Gran Nayar, which is um, a region of Western Mexico, um, where four states, um, Nayarit, Durango, Zacatecas, and Jalisco, all kind of meet um, in an area of pretty rugged and fairly remote, at least in terms nowadays of the poor infrastructure, um, mountains. At the bottom of these sort of mountain ranges that all kind of mass together um, in the middle um, of where these states meet, um, it's, it's pretty hot. And at the top of the mountains, it's extremely cold. Um, so there's huge number of kind of varied ecological niches. Um, and it's an area that's been inhabited for thousands of years by indigenous people who, partly because of the kind of harshness of the terrain and partly because they didn't have any resources particularly worth stealing for most of the colonial period, um, resisted um, the kind of, a, you know, Spanish colonization um, that occurred in much of the rest of Mexico. Um, and this means that the, the four indigenous peoples of the Gran Nayar region, um, the Coras or Nayari, the Huicholes or Wiraritari, um, the Tepehuanos or Oodam, and the Mexicaneros, who were just Mexicaneros because that's their name for themselves in both Spanish and their own language, um, have maintained a huge amount of autonomy in terms of their cultural um, political, uh, economic practices, you know, their ways of life, their ways of understanding the world, their ways of seeing themselves um, are really very distinct. Um, and there's a lot in common between those four groups um, and a lot of contrast between those four groups and the rest of Mexico. And I was setting out to understand how a huge national event like the Mexican Revolution, which was this kind of period of political tumult between 1910 and 1940. There, were, there was a, a revolution, revolution. There were military coups, attempts at coups, rebellions, um, religious conflicts, a huge land reform that took several forms, um, and a kind of program of state building, um, an attempt to kind of forge this new revolutionary nation. Um, I, was, I was interested in how that kind of sweeping national event, which is very much foundational to the country that we now understand to be Mexico today, um, affected these groups up there in the mountains um, about whom very little had really been written, um, historically speaking. There'd been quite a lot of anthropologists who'd gone up into the mountains to study their cultures because their cultures were fairly distinct and therefore interesting to anthropologists but precisely because they are indigenous groups who are regarded as living in a remote region the idea that they'd really participated in anything national um you know was was a strange one to most um mexican scholars um at least for much of the 20th century so there was this big kind of gap in the historical record um, that I thought that it would be really interesting to fill. Um, I didn't realise then quite how complicated the story would be because I kind of had this idea that, okay, you have this big revolution and, you know, a decade ago I was probably a bit more 
enthusiastic about revolutions than I am now. I was a bit more of an optimist. I thought it's, it's a big revolution. It's all about freeing the peasantry from this servitude. Um, and, you know, talks a lot about liberating um, indigenous peoples. Um, so I presume that to the extent that the peoples of the Gran Nayar participated in the revolution, they were probably on the side of the revolutionaries. Um, I quickly realized that that wasn't the case um, and that although some groups, some factions within indigenous communities in the Gran Nayar had kind of supported one set of revolutionaries that often fought against other revolutionaries. Um, and then in 1926, with the outbreak of this big Catholic rebellion known as the, the Cristiada, the Cristero revolt, where basically the kind of Catholic equivalent of a Taliban kind of group um, sort of sweeps across much of Western Mexico, um, trying to overthrow this satanic revolutionary government in the name of the true faith. Um, all of these indigenous people in the Gran Nayar, um, who to a large degree are not Catholic at all, not really Christian at all, They're, they have extremely um, distinct practices to the extent that um, you know, in the, in the 60s, the Pope sent out Franciscan missionaries to try and convert the indigenous peoples of the Gran Nayar to Catholicism. That's kind of, that's how not Catholic they are. Um, a lot of them ended up joining these religious kind of rebels um, and fighting in the name of Catholicism, which they were, you know, not a religion that they were really involved with, against the revolution that claimed it had set out to liberate them from poverty and oppression and, and ignorance. So that was a kind of real key paradox to unpick. And as I started to research in the archives and also through fieldwork, this story of slightly paradoxical alliances being formed um, up in the Sierra, um, I found that actually one of the main bones of contention between the indigenous peoples of the Gran Nayar and the revolutionary state was all of these teachers who had been sent by the, the, the revolutionary state to go and kind of spread, um, you know, science and modern understandings um, in, in these kind of primitive mountain regions. Um, but the way in which these teachers went about trying to uh, liberate from ignorance these indigenous people um, was often deeply, deeply offensive um, to the local people who didn't necessarily think that they were particularly ignorant um, and certainly didn't think that what the teachers were bringing with them um, to replace their customs and traditions with um, was an improvement on what they already had. And so then you have this situation where um, these teachers who are ostensibly out there to, to help these kind of poor and marginalized communities um, are so offensive to local people that local people are kind of lynching them um, and running them out of their communities. So, the, you know, the, there are these paradoxes. Then last of all, you have this agrarian reform that is supposedly all about um, getting rid of these huge land holdings and giving the people who live on the land and from the land the right to own the land. Um, and in much of Mexico, this agrarian reform does attract huge amounts of peasant support. 
Um, and in the Grand Nayar, it's incredibly contentious. Um, and again, you have these agrarian engineers who were sent there to sort of divide up the lands fairly and equally, supposedly, um, being run out of town, chased away, shot at. Um, and when they do manage to kind of instigate an agrarian reform, it leads to these kind of mini despotisms emerging in areas that have previously been really quite kind of directly democratic um, as the people that benefit most from the agrarian reform um, are kind of local mestizo, Spanish-speaking, non-Indigenous people who've settled in the region quite recently and use the agrarian reform as a pretext to snatch up all of these lands that had originally been Indigenous communal lands um, and had been in the hands of, of these Indigenous communities for, you know, as long as there have been Indigenous people on the land there. Um, so it turned out to be, for me at least, an even more interesting project um, than I had anticipated. Um, and I guess that's one reason why the book's really quite long. Um, but also why I hope um, it will contribute to our understandings of what the revolution in Mexico was really about. It's a case study of all of the ways in which the revolution claimed to be some things, but was perceived by people on the ground as representing the opposite. Um, it led to, you know, and these, these contradictions within the revolution led to sort of further contradictions and counterintuitive alliances being formed between groups who you would think on paper have absolutely nothing in common, um, but who end up kind of fighting together um, against people who had announced they were, you know, all about creating positive change for everyone. So, I mean, it really asks some quite big questions of various narratives that we have about the Mexican Revolution, about the way in which ethnicity is politically important, the way in which class and ethnicity and different kind of forms of leadership um, may come together to create really quite counterintuitive results, may lead pagan indigenous people to fight as part of these fundamentalist Catholic guerrilla forces against a revolution that is ostensibly there to help the poorest and you know most benighted of all of the people in Mexico, i.e. local indigenous people in isolated regions. Um, and I think it might also, hopefully, um, help us to understand a little bit more about, you know, some of the modern problems that Mexico is facing, um, especially in these rural areas like the Gran Nayar, which is today kind of right in the middle of, you know, what we call the, the drug war. Um, it's a, a very conflictive zone um, in which there is a lot of opium being grown. There's a lot of violence. Um, there's a lot of kind of social problems. Um, you know, rule of law is... Um, you know, not uh, particularly well established. Um, and a lot of the elderly people I was interviewing as part of my research, you know, had some very direct comparisons to make between the revolutionary period that I was studying um, when there were bandits and um, guerrillas and rebels and gunmen running around the place um, and what's going on today. Um, but yeah, that's probably enough of a preamble for me. Um, I'm afraid that, yeah, I, I can't get 
the map to work, so I can't show you all exactly where in Mexico the Gran Nayar is. Um, but um, yeah, I hope that that's given you the gist of, of what this story is about, even if you're not quite sure where in Mexico it's taking place. Thanks, Nat. Uh, so, Julie, do you want to um, give your, your comments? Now? Yeah, yeah, I, I'd be happy to. I'm, right. I'm sorry, I have a bit of a, a chest cold, so I may cough. It's not COVID, it's just a regular cold. <laughs> but um, Anyway, thank you guys so much for inviting me here today. It's, it's such a pleasure to talk about um, this really fabulous book. Um, and I think that this book uh, really brings into focus a long neglected region and the active participation of indigenous peoples in the Mexican Revolution. And so in that sense, I think Morris's uh, work stands as an important contribution to the field in and of itself. Um, and there are several elements that I wanna talk about um, or draw attention to that I think make this work particularly unique and rich. Um, first, one of the book's most important contributions to the field of Latin American historiography more generally is, is precisely in its anthropological historical approach, confronting a dearth of archival sources, many of which were lost in rebel attacks due to increment weather and local customs of burying or hiding documents, Morse fills these gaps in the archival record with um, anthropological approaches. He supplements archival records with participant observation, with gossip and what he calls common sense that he obtains through extensive fieldwork. This fieldwork gives him a deep appreciation of the importance of indigenous costumbre for the region's varied and, um, and rich topography and climate. And everywhere present in this book is this deep ethnographic knowledge gleaned from having lived in and talked with um, so many different peoples in the regions themselves. This approach is, I, I emphasize, quite novel actually for the period in study. While the field of ethno-history is well established and vibrant for the colonial period and for the late 20th century, there are very few few historians of the 19th, early 20th century Latin America who take seriously indigenous cosmologies in their analysis. The reasons are very clear. Many colonial documents were written from ethnographic perspectives um, as priests and state officials alike had a vested interest in cataloging indigenous languages and customs in order to better govern new lands and adapt extant cultural and political practices. The 19th century and early 20th century, by contrast, is filled with condescension towards indigenous peoples. Um, and they're colored by, you know, archival records are colored by ethnic and political bias. And, and it makes it very hard, even if you're reading against the grain, to develop the, that ethnographic or ethno-historical approach. Um, but by engaging in this ethnographic approach and by conducting fieldwork and oral histories, Morris is able to gain a much richer understanding of indigenous worldviews and practices taking seriously the beliefs and emotions of historical actors, even when we never have direct access to them, is crucial in our attempts to understand the past and of course the events that took place. In doing so, Morris takes, in, um, takes us into the heart of the Gran Nayar and shows how the region, a relative periphery or backwater, participated in the revolutionary events of Mexico in often, as he was talking about, very contradictory, unexpected, and quite surprising ways. Various indigenous peoples of the region continually and innovatively adapted, redeployed, 
um, the political opportunities afforded by the region to strengthen their practices and at times to keep state actors and mestizos out. In doing so, Morris demonstrates how indigenous worldviews and values were deeply embedded in local cultures and politics and how they then in turn influenced national events. He notes, for example, while some of the region's culturally distinct and politically self-governing communities may have been carried along by the violence that swept Mexico in the, between 1910 and 1940, others were generally attracted to the rival ideologies of the Eastas, Carrancistas, Cristeros, and radical agrarian reformers. At the same time, their unique and markedly magical ways of understanding the world also helped to shape these sympathies with important effects of their, on their societies and cultures on the local, regional, and national outcomes of the Mexican Revolution, and therefore on the emergence of the Mex Mexican nation state as we know it today. So the image that we gain then is not of a regressive or pre-political peasants who are simply steeped in local concerns, but how these indigenous actors participated in and helped to shape the events of the Mexican Revolution itself. Indeed, part of the strength of this book also resides exactly in its complexity. Building on comparative studies, Mexico te um, Morris teases out how different indigenous communities responded to the folding events in very different ways. In Morris's book, The Violence of the Revolution and the Legacies of that Violence is also extremely clear and it permeates nearly every page for readers who are unfamiliar with the Mexican Revolution. You get the sense, the real visceral sense of just how violent it really was, even after the so-called violent stage of the revolution comes to an end. Indeed, it reminded me of Great Grandad's evocation in A Center of Revolution to think about political violence as a category of analysis. Grandin reminds us that political violence in the Marxist tradition was understood as a product of class struggle or class relations. Um, for modernization theorists, on the other hand, violence was understood as an indicator of political immaturity, a kind of backwardness, right, that often Latin America was painted as. Now historians have, in line with the postmodern or linguistic turn, discussed violence from a more human um, interpretive angle. Grandin, however, asks us to take a different turn and to think about the contingency, the historical contingency of violence. That is how violence takes, takes up in moments of utility to propel further violence and to propel further polarization, and how this polar, polarization and propulsion multiplies through overlapping fields of power. I think that understanding violence um, in this way as a category of political analysis is brilliantly realized in this book. And we get a sense of how actors made decisions to join insurgency of the Cristeros, for example, with often unintended consequences that shaped future rounds of violence. And I think this has broader implications for how we think about political violence in other periods and, um, and places across Latin America. Like violence, conflict within and between indigenous communities is everywhere present in this book. And in this sense, Morris takes us beyond the rather romantic view of indigenous communities and subaltern peoples in general as homogenous wholes. Um, and rather we see these civil, um, you know, civil religious hierarchies of indigenous communities are often understood as providing sort of a stability and unchanging and enduring essence. Indeed, there's a consensus on work on the colonial period about how native intermediaries in the colonial period and their civil religious hierarchies and the state mediation forms um, functioned really to create an enduring and stable society and to keep actors out. 
In Morris's book, we see rather that conflict within and between indigenous communities was rampant. And there's no doubt that that is part and parcel of the Mexican revolution, opening up spaces for local upstarts to take advantage and break free from rigid indigenous hierarchies. Um, and that also often results in conflict. But in demonstrating how indigenous communities can continue to reproduce customs, um, I wonder more broadly if it's an invocation to think about how conflict is not opposed to community, to the senses of solidarity and boundaries of inclusion and exclusion necessary for building communities, but rather at the very integral part of it. And this and many other ways, Morris invites us to think about relations of power, including race, class, and gender, as well as political differences and how they are embedded within and cross-cut subaltern peoples. Finally, the story Morris tells is not one of just indigenous people shedding their identities in the midst of a grand revolution to become campesinos, but to a far more complex one of adaptation and resilience. And I think there's a large story to be told about the relationship between state power and indigenous cultural institutions that help us to understand why in the midst of this cultural and political revolution and the founding of the pre-indigenous communities are able to, um, in this place and time, reproduce themselves so effectively. Um, finally, and I think perhaps most significantly, the book will continue to be read for some time for its contributions to indigenous engagements with revolution in Latin America more broadly. As Josie Saldana Portillo argued, there is very frequently very little difference between how Cold War modernization theorists and leftist revolutionaries understood indigenous peoples. In both cases, they understood them as, as regressive forces that needed to develop more modern political subjectivities. Here we have a historical case study, not only of how revolutionary actors thought about indigenous peoples, but how those indigenous peoples also creatively redeployed those same institutions and opportunities to their own ends. And so in all of these ways, in its methodology, in the complexity and the comparativeness, in the way that it deals with conflict and political violence, I think that Morris offers us quite a lot to think about um, in relationship to indigenous peoples and political violence in Latin America. Thank you. Great, thank you very much. Uh, ben, do you want to come in now? If he's still around? Uh, I'm still around. Uh, oh. The name Noemi Morales. And, uh, oh, I see. Okay. Sorry. That's why I can see you. Please go ahead. Right, okay. Uh, so, uh, well, I'm really honoured to be here um, to introduce Nat's wonderful uh, new book, um, Soldiers, Saints and Shamans. Uh, I'm also very happy to be one of 58 people or a small Grand Nayar city um, uh, doing so uh, online. It's very kind to be invited to do it. Now, I should declare at the outset that I've got a bit of a, a vested interest, um, I suppose, in, in the production of this book. I, I, I think I feel a certain parental responsibility to the book, having been there in the halls of St. Anthony's together with Eduardo, uh, marking it when it was just a scrappy little PhD. Uh, now, like any parent worth his salt, well, any British parent anyway, I then left the book stroke child for six years. And when I came back, I was really delighted to see what it would, had become. I mean, it really is, uh, I read it the second time today. Uh, it was an, a real unadulterated delight from the old opening vignette 
about the Odom, uh, Odom ambush on the slopes of, slopes of Potato Hill through to the fascinating epilogue on the, uh, and I'm going to pronounce these wrong, uh, I was taking notes when you were saying this, uh, and then I missed one. So, Nayaripe, Wijaritari, Odom, and Mexicaneros cultural traditions uh, and their reflections on the revolution. I, don't, I didn't notice if that was a nod or not. Um, anyway, so I suppose um, what perhaps most amazed me was the way that the book flowed, uh, bringing out the characters of the Gran Nayar Caciques, lingering on their, on their religious and spiritual traditions, uh, their relationships with the cosmos and the land, without ever losing sight of the kind of narrative necessity to discuss political aims, pragmatic alliances, and bitter feuds. Now, it's a, a, to me, it's a, a really masterful piece of, of Mexican regional history, up there with some of the very best, the kind of uh, uh, your Matt Butler's, Chris Boyer's, Mary Kay Vaughan's, uh, and even up there with, 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 with some of, um, um, uh, yeah, uh, with some of their work. Um, so I've been told that my job for this presentation um, is to talk a little bit about how Nat's book fits into the historiography or the other literature on Mexican history. Um, now, this is, I think, known in the business as the bum deal. Now, especially <laughs> given that it was sold to me three months ago with the promise of alcohol, hospitality, uh, and a trip to the big city. But I'm currently, uh, it's currently taking place, I've written down here in a tiny rain-lashed shed. Uh, in actual fact, in my daughter's bedroom with a very angry daughter on the other end of that door, um, in a plague-ridden tier three Leamington spa with no liquid accomplishment, uh, accompaniment whatsoever. Uh, so I was thinking, if nothing else, I suppose it did get me to ponder the fate of America's indigenous groups, and maybe that was Nat's point, uh, being let down and given no alcohol in the end. Um, so anyway, in this section then, I get to effectively drop the names uh, infer some kind of unspoken heritage and uncover thinly disguised beefs, uh, while Julie very nicely waxed lyrical about Nat's narrative style uh, and gung-ho archival style. So, uh, yeah, sorry about, about this, um, this section. So in the most basic terms, um, Nat's history offers a history of a region of Mexico and a group of predominantly indigenous actors that frankly are completely absent uh, from most descriptions uh, of uh, the revolution, but actually most descriptions of Mexican 19th and 20th century histories per se. Uh, despite the ample noise over regional studies, uh, particularly now Twitter's invented, um, Pache, the work of Antonio Escobar Olmsted's intrepid students, most uh, regional uh, academics or regional historians study a rather repetitive litany of places mostly within about an hour's bus ride of a welcoming state capital. Uh, now, it's not exactly armchair regional history, uh, but perhaps we could call it, here's one for the Mexicanist, Primera Plus uh, regional history. Uh, now, Nat's book is the polar opposite of this. Um, it's rooted in a long experience and a clear love of um, uh, a region hours away, not only from the nearest internet server, but the nearest bus line. Uh, yet it's also a region, as Dat Nat clearly demonstrates, that has always played a key role in regional politics, weighing up distant alliances with state interlopers and the dangers of armed revolt, like the most pragmatic of savvy priest politicians. Uh, it's driven by a scrupulous archival research, as well as an eclectic uh, and rather scattergun use, and I'm going to quote the same passage as Julie here, of personal letters, personal documents, local chronicles, published history, numbers, legal files, and laws, 
all combined with participant observation, gossip and common sense, uh, common sense obtained by field work. As such, it's then, it's a model uh, of this, um, of what the anthropologist and wannabe cacique Paul Friedrich termed the anthro-historical uh, approach. And, and it's a really wonderful version of that and a, and a model for how I think um, uh, many graduates, but also many kind of more senior academics who pursue this kind of uh, engagement of anthropology and history. Now to make sense of such a region, Nat has relied on the work of his PhD supervisor, uh, Alan Knight. Now, now this is hardly surprising. Um, uh, John Maynard Keynes famously said that most politicians, though they believe themselves original, were actually what he called the slaves of some economist. Uh, while most Mexican historians, uh, though we sometimes like to think of ourselves as a little bit original, are normally just enlarging a footnote from the Mexican Revolution. Um, now, in Soldiers, Saints and Shamans, Nat has gone much further than most. Um, he's taken Alan's ideas on the Serrano peasantry and their push for political autonomy in the face of the state's economic political and cultural plans, and he's demonstrated how it could be used to explain vast swathes of non-Spanish-speaking mountain Mexico. Um, he's also shown extremely well how such an idea can explain so many of the conflicts that dogged immediate post-1920 Mexico. Now, this is a bit of a one-off, and although scholars have been poring over Alan's two-tone masterpiece for decades, few have elucidated, explained, and enlarged upon the idea of the Serrano peasantry so clearly uh, and so cleverly. Um, so I think that that's one real kind of major historical, uh, historiographical engagement and a very useful one. And one that I noticed that Nat has, has recently kind of uh, um, uh, enlarged upon in an interesting article on kind of uh, using the idea of the Serrano peasantry to, to understand, understand drug growers uh, in Mexico, which is, which is fascinating. I'd, I'd uh, tell everyone to read that as well. Um, but Nat's also engaged and enlarged on, I suppose, two other kind of key literatures. The first concerns the Cristero Revolt, that massive uprising of centre-west Catholics uh, against post-revolutionary anti-clerical reforms. Now here, Nat brilliantly works off the conclusions of Jean Mayer to examine how indigenous groups of Grand Nayar neglected the religious aims of the Cristiada and instead embraced its push for political autonomy allying with Cristeros to push out interfering and patronizing teachers, politicians, and mestizo entrepreneurs. The work not only adds another angle to scholarship of the Cristiada, but also suggests motives for indigenous Cristeros among the Mayos of Sonora, or the Zapotecs even, of the Sierra Sur, which I think haven't been acknowledged in that literature sufficiently. Um, now, finally, uh, Nat has also, uh, Nat's work is also a rebuke. Actually, I'm sure that's such a nice guy, Nat would not call it a rebuke, but at least a, a questioning uh, of a particular type of mid-1990s historiography, which sought to play up the relatively successful cultural efforts of the post-revolutionary regime. Such works perhaps stressed how state education and well-meaning teachers forged what one, what what were fashionably termed negotiated deals with previously defensive outsider groups. And that demonstrates, I think, both acutely and in great deal how many of these negotiations either dissipated into racist name calling or were renegotiated at the point of a Winchester carbine. Um, so I think that's a kind of important uh, addendum to this vast historiography on the educational project uh, of the revolution. Uh, anyway, in conclusion, it's a fantastic book. Thanks for making me read it again. I won't read it a third time, just saying that now.
Great. Thank you very much, Ben. Thanks, Ben. Uh, okay, so we've got we've got um, about almost 20, 20 minutes or so, or maybe a bit more for questions. So if anyone would like to ask a question, you can either um, do so in the chat or or raise your hand. Uh, and I'll try and get quite a lot of you. So apologies if I don't see your hand raised immediately. Alan. Yeah, thanks. Um, can I just pick up on one small detail that Ben just uh, in his peroration, but most of which of course I entirely endorse, where he mentioned that uh, Nat's original thesis, what he called it, I think, a scrappy little PhD. Um, it wasn't little. And whether it was scrappy, well, I, I have to say, I've read uh, manuscripts submitted by established academics to presses that have been just as scrappy, but we won't go there. Uh, let me just focus on something which also Ben mentioned, and it has to do partly with Mary Kay Vaughan's analysis. And I see where he's coming from in, in that when he mentioned the 1990s historiography, which perhaps presented a slightly upbeat notion of the state in the 1930s, particularly the teachers, the SEP, integrating and dialoguing. I think that was a bit too sort of schmaltzy. Um, but it does seem to me that actually the Mary Kay Vaughan um, analysis, which of course does include communities which rejected that, those overtures from the state, and particularly the Sierra Norte de Puebla. She, she contrasts different communities in Puebla. She takes the Yaqui Valley as another co comparison. So what I was thinking of to put to Nat is a sort of rather grand comparative approach, because I'm not a regional historian, but I like to try and try and make sense of these regions. And it seems to me two things are distinctive to the Gran Nayara, the story that you tell in great detail. And I wondered if this kind of sounds right. The first is, there are clearly regions, be they Serrano, Lowland, or whatever, which play a part in the revolution as popular movements. So you know, the Zapatistas are an obvious case. Now we know why they are. They're very different in terms of the ecology and the, the, the socioeconomic makeup of Morelos, etc. Then you have Serrano movements or movements in the Sierra, some of which are revolutionary in Western Chihuahua, but many of them are not. So if you take Oaxaca, which Ben knows about, or the Gran Nayar, you have Sierra or Serrano communities, but they don't actually play a major role. They don't buy into the revolution. The revolution in the 1910s, uh, confirm or you know, deny if I've got this wrong, um, that's someone on the margin. It's a thing that's happening elsewhere and that's rather troublesome, but they're not actually in it. So for them, the revolution, this is the second part of the argument, sort of is really a a function of the 20s and 30s. It's, it's when the state begins to regroup and, and, and become more powerful to impose education. And that's when you get the Cristiada in the center west region uh, and the Cardinista educational push. And at that point, this is where Mary Kay, I think does make a good point. She sees a sort of bifurcation between communities which are particularly um, more lowland, what she calls communities in formation, which are more amenable to state control or I don't know, ideological indoctrination. I'm not sure what you want to call it. But at any rate, the dialogue does sort of work. But then you have others, which the Gran Nayar seems to be a, a classic case, and the Sierra Norte de Puebla, and some of Ben's, or many of Ben's, Highland Oaxacan communities. For them, the revolution comes from outside, and the revolution uh, doesn't dialogue with them very much. It does tend to be quite aggressive. Uh, its power is growing. Uh, and, and therefore, uh, the, the sort of Serrano, whatever you want to call it, ethos or impetus, 
it tends to adopt a more anti-revolutionary thrust, not in all cases, because as you show, you know, we know this in other cases too, that the different communities react differently depending on tactics and leadership and caciquismo and so on. But it does seem to me that you can, or do you think I'm right, that you can fit the Gran Nayar into a certain kind of evolving pattern relating to both the armed revolution, participation or non-participation, and then in the 20s and 30s, involvement of a more, uh, what should we call it, consensual, kind, Yaki Valley, uh, some of the other lowland areas, coastal Chiapas, as compared to highland regions, which are often on the margin and therefore much more harder to penetrate and where the school, and, and you show this, the SEP and the school teachers have really quite a hard time of it. Yes, I think that uh, the Granayar certainly fits into some of those patterns, although obviously um, there are always exceptions. There are certain communities in the Gran Nayar that participated more vigorously in the sort of the revolution proper, um, you know, from sort of 1912 to 1916 or whatever, purely because um, they were either closer to the main kind of throughfares of various revolutionary armies, or they were closer to a railway line or a state capital or whatever. And, and so, you know, they kind of get sucked in, didn't necessarily buy into um, any kind of revolutionary ideology um, beyond, you know, vague kind of um, push for autonomy and whoever can best supply that or whoever threatens their autonomy the least is kind of your friend. Um, but yeah, no, definitely um, agree that... Um, yeah, there is there is a kind of broad pattern that, um, although there may be sort of small differences when you look really really deeply into it. Um, yeah, yeah, and I think there are quite a lot of parallels between um, bits of the Sierra Zapoteca, uh, the Sierra Norte de Puebla, and um, and the Gran Nayar, um, not just in terms of how. Um, receptive communities or factions of communities were to revolutionary kind of cultural programs, but also in terms of the influence of um, militias, the defensas sociales, um, how key those were to the state's local project and the results of um, the state's, uh, federal state's kind of state building program being really quite militarized from the get-go, um, but militarized through dependence on a load of militias who weren't necessarily very reliable allies um, and who at the drop of the hat will actually declare against, you know, at least the state government, if not the full federal government, um, for very kind of local reasons, which then creates these kind of mini vortexes of political instability at local level that um, potentially go against the grain of what's happening at, at national level or even state level. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, yes, and I certainly, uh, yeah, Mary Kay Vaughan et al. Um, and Banches as well. And, you know, they, they do point out these examples of communities that don't necessarily take too kindly to, um, you know, and voluntarily negotiate um, the whole time. Um, maybe the Gran Nayaris is a particularly, like, egregious example of, like, how reluctant some mountain people really were to negotiate. Um, especially if their rivals within the community looked like they might negotiate. Um. Uh, 
there are several questions in the chat and then hands up. So I will um, collect several, I think, if that's okay with you, uh, Nat. Uh, so Mike Kent asks, any comments or reflections on the Zapatista movement? Um, I don't know if you're referring to the, the first yeah, ones or the one. second ones. I meant <laughs> probably the second ones. Uh, Kate? Saunders, do you want to ask your question? Sure. Uh, thanks, Matt. Hi. Um, I, typical anthropologist that I am, want to hear more about your ethnographic fieldwork. Um, and in particular, sort of the role that uh, you saw this playing in kind of the historical project that you were undertaking. But I'd also be quite interested to hear um, if sort of the ways in which you think that your, your sort of historical interests and your approach to these indigenous groups um, sort of through the uh, historical development of their relationship with the Mexican state kind of shaped your more ethnographic understanding of their contemporary situation as well and in what ways, if that makes sense. Uh, but that would be great, thank you. Okay, and just I'll add one more, uh, so from uh, Hart, Maria, do, do you want to, uh, I don't know who that is, but uh, anyway, Hart Maria asks, what does autonomy look like during the Mexican Revolution? I'm also thinking about the comparison with Zapatista uh, autonomy, which includes schools, health centers, laws, politics, government, and jails. So maybe take those three and there are more down the line. Okay. Um... Current Zapatista movement. Um, I guess there is a lot more ideology to the current Zapatista movement's uh, quest for autonomy um, than there was in the much less organized um, movements in the Gran Nayar, which for a start, we're all based, um, you know, it was community per community. There were very, there was very little in the way of kind of pan-communal alliances, um, far less alliances at, at like kind of ethnic level. There was no sort of tribal movement. Often the fiercest battles being fought were between communities um, that spoke the same languages, but had kind of um, conflictive histories of, you know, contested borders. Um, that's not to say that the Zapatistas now um, also involve a kind of complete pan-ethnic unity. There are clearly like pro-state paramilitaries from some Zotzal or, you know, Zotzal or Zetzal communities that are fighting against people who speak the same language who identify with the Zapatistas. Um, but yeah, I think just, um, you know, Zapatistas, Zapatismo, as we understand it in the sort of the subcomandante Marcos way, um, you know, there's a heavy dose of kind of Maoism and Trotskyism in, in, in the background there um, that was kind of completely absent in, um, in the Gran Nayar in the 1910s, 20s and 30s. Um, and in fact, a lot of um, the kind of battles waged by uh, indigenous people in the Gran Nayar against representatives of the state were waged precisely against self-declared socialists um, who, no matter what, you know, whether they were 
left or right or whatever, um, more importantly, represented a kind of interfering state that, um, yeah, that was seen to be imposing itself um, where it was not welcome. Um, that's, yeah, and I think, you know, and that's, uh, that's probably reflected more recently in um, the lack in almost all of the communities of the Granayar of any real kind of uh, identification with the current Zapatista movement. Um, there's only one community that I know of that's right on the very outskirts of the Granayar, um, which has quite a different history to the rest of the communities that identifies as um, a kind of autonomous community in the Zapatista sense and is aligned with the um, uh, independent um, campesino um, organization um, that is kind of linked to the Zapatistas. Um, but certainly some interesting questions there about why these differences exist. Um, I would suggest that uh, it probably goes very deep and is all about the different very different histories of the regions um, where the Zapatistas are strongest is often, you know, their areas that had haciendas, big land holdings, um, and displacements, population movements in a way that the, the Gran Nayar didn't. Um, as to field work, um, yeah, well, field work was incredibly important and I wouldn't have been able to get my head around half of what I was finding in the archives if I hadn't at the very least gone and just walked around and ridden horses and hitchhiked and seen the landscape and kind of understood at least a little bit of just like the, the, the geography alone. Um, it took a while to get my head around how you can, you know, walk two hours and you've gone from 45 degrees centigrade to, you know, 10 degrees. I mean, the, the, the just how extreme some of the mountain climates are. Um, and that has real effects on the kind of history that you're looking at as it's played out within that landscape. More important still was like getting my head around how important still um, ritual is ceremony um, to politics in the, in the Gran Nayar. Um, I guess it's not something that I'd really thought about much before, but actually, you know, now having been in the Gran Nayar, I look at uh, footage of the UK Parliament and I'm like, oh yeah, you know, it's completely ritualized, ceremonial. They're muttering these old kind of incantations that no one really understands anymore, but still have some sort of meaning, at least to them. But then I can, in the same way as young people in the Gran Nayar now, you know, are not necessarily that interested in the kind of, four-day narrative myth historical prayers that are part of these political ceremonies that the elders are kind of in charge of um, you know equally people watch uh, the UK parliament now and they're like what the hell are these guys doing they're so archaic what's this about they know nothing they're primitive we don't quite call them savages but um, you know similar generational divides um, around the the issue of ritual now, which helped me to understand these generational divides in the 1920s and 30s between the older generations whose idea of, of politics was entirely predicated on the proper performance of ritual, which was not only necessary to carry out politics in a proper way, but also necessary for 
the continued existence of the entire universe. Um, and these younger guys, you know, generally guys, actually, um, the, the older people, men had the sort of the official uh, ritual roles, but um, women were, were very involved in that as well, um, in a way that these, these younger men who had fought in the revolution and got weapons from one revolutionary army or the other, or the Cristero rebels or whoever it was, um, you know, were not nearly as interested in, um, in ritual. They didn't really think that the universe would necessarily completely come to a stop if people didn't, you know, do the right dance at the right time of year. Um, they might've had a sneaking suspicion that, you know, it was, it was not worth pushing those doubts too far just in case. Um, but yeah, some real sort of ritual versus practical brute force political stuff going on um, in the 1930s that's, that's completely mirrored um, by what's happening in communities today. And yeah, doing the fieldwork allowed me to start wrapping my head around some of those conflicts. Um, I can't say that I've managed to get my head around it completely because the ways of thinking about things there are just very different. And um, unfortunately, I was never able to like learn enough of the four different, really quite different indigenous languages spoken in the region. Um, and without properly understanding those languages, you know, I'm, I'm never going to be a total ritual expert. But um, yeah, the fieldwork definitely enabled me to understand concepts that um, I can see now we're hinted at in the documentary record, but um, we're not really like fleshed out particularly well. Um, yeah, I guess if I'd gone, if I'd based everything just on archival documents, it would have been a very, very, very different thesis and then book. Um, and it would have been quite rubbish, to be honest, because um, I wouldn't have really understood anything. Um, which would have made it a bit of a pointless endeavor. Um, Definitely less fun, I'm sure, too. Hmm? Definitely way less fun, I'm sure, too. Also, yeah, I mean, after a while in the archives, I was seriously <laughs> itching to go and dance around a bonfire for three nights. You know, it's, um, <laughs> that kind of stimulation um, was what got me through the archive part of the, the research, um, you know, in itself. Um, so yeah, yeah, long live field work. <laughs> um, and I can't actually remember the last question. It was about autonomy. What, what, what does autonomy look like during the Mexican revolution and any comparisons with Zapatista autonomy? Hmm. Um, I, it probably depends on who you, you know, where you are and who you ask. I think part of what my book shows is that, um, really taking into account local differences and peculiarities is incredibly important. Um, and so what autonomy looks like in one of the communities of the Gran Nayar is probably very different to what autonomy looked like in a, um, you know, a mestizo community, um, you know, two days walk away um, outside, just outside of the mountains, um, which probably looks incredibly different to autonomy, 
you know, a week's journey away, um, you know, to use the, the measurements that were common then. Um, but in, in the Granayar, autonomy meant um, control of territory by the community, control of the community by um, a constantly revolving hierarchy um, of men and of couples, um, men and women, um, who were in charge both of civil and religious affairs kind of at the same time because civil and religious affairs are completely interlocking. Um, and yeah, it was the right to continue to speak their language, um, grow their corn and their beans in the way that they'd always grown their corn and their beans. Um, it was the right to not have your cow stolen. Um, the right to not be forcibly recruited off into some rebel army. Um, and I think, you know, to an extent, autonomy kind of still remains the same. Like, you know, the situation has changed a fair amount, but um, in the Gran Nayar, autonomy is still kind of understood as controlling the territory and the people who live within the territory and whose religious beliefs and practices are rooted in their constant crossing of that territory. Um, you know, they, they have the right to control this kind of sacred space that their ancestors also controlled and now form part of. Um, and yeah, to order their, you know, their own political affairs, which often means doing everything um, political via a load of rituals. Um, which I guess is quite different potentially to um, Zapatista ideas of autonomy, which also include the provision of, um, you know, proper provision of services um, like healthcare and education. And the Gran Nayar, I mean, uh, as far as I'm aware, um, those things are less important. They believe that the, you know, traditional medicine is still way more important than like modern medicine um and they believe that the doctors that the government occasionally sends out there are all trying to kill them um and equally like everyone hates the teachers still because the teachers are the biggest caciques um or like bosses in in the the region because they are the mediators between the state and the community um and so those kind of concerns are i guess a lot less important okay we're almost out of time but let's take two quick questions if possible, from uh, Maria Barbara Cepeda and from Tom Rath. Uh, Maria Barbara? Okay, thank you. Uh, Nat, you sold your book so well that I'm designing a grad seminar for next semester, so I think I'm adding it. <laughs> uh, my question is about Nayarit. Uh, in my own research about in the 18th century, I, I've been focused on the plan to make some blast this great port in the Pacific. And I've been, uh, and as a child, I traveled a lot to Nayarit, uh, but always to the coast. Uh, I've, saw, I've seen some blast, the port, the, uh, like a very old uh, decadent port, uh, the, the plantations, a lot of tobacco plantations, cattle ranches. So what is the relationship uh, of these indigenous communities in the Sierra to, to the lowlands? Uh, who, who inhabits the lowlands? How 
do they relate with them? And also after the 1970s, when they established this Curist research for, for, for really like people, very popular people, uh, the poor basically, uh, like Guayabitos and Dosayada. Uh, so how, how's that going on? What's the relationship between the Sierra and that area of Nigeria? Thank you. Tom, do you want to ask your question? Sure. Congrats, Nat. Um, uh, I have to apologise. You might have answered this right in the beginning. I was locked out for the first 10 minutes or so. But my question is, um, why does the book end in 1940? Um, and, I, you know, is that something you're reading off Nat, the sort of national, oh, we've got company, mm -hmm. uh, national political mm -hmm. periodization, or is it something that you're read off regional periodization, or is it both, and how do they interact? And that's, I'm asking that question and thinking about, to help me sort of slot your case study in this larger national framework that we were talking about. And now I'm gonna mute it. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so, well, I'll try and keep these answers fairly brief. Um, the relationship between the Sierra and the, the Costa in Nayarit um, goes back to like pre-Hispanic times. Um, and so part of the kind of, pilgrimage routes of the peoples of the Sierra still involve the Pacific coast, why you have Wirarica people um, trekking to San Blas, where there's a big white rock, which um, is part of the kind of cult of the um, goddess of the rains. Um, and the Koras also have, or the, the Nayarite, I should say, um, also have a kind of, um, yeah, a relationship with, with um, the coast, which was where they always got salt from, which was obviously super important. Um, to them because there's no salt in the Sierra and everyone needs salt. Um, and so, so the, the coast is still kind of inscribed in the Sierra imaginary um, as an important place. It's also, it's the land of the dead. Um, it's full of these zancudos, like mosquitoes, which are the souls of, of dead people. Um, and then in the 19th century, San Blas was important um, not just because of salt and kind of old trade links between the Sierra and the, the coastal communities, but also because um, the increase in commerce on the coast um, meant that there were sort of modern, you know, modern goods um, on the coast that people in the Sierra decided they quite wanted, like machete, you know, proper good machetes and um, um, and so that you know people would come down to basically to buy stuff on the coast. Um, and they bring down stuff from the Sierra and the trade for coastal things. Um, and then later, um, a lot of British smugglers and contrabandists on that coast um, gave the Nayarite and the Sierra a lot of guns, um, which enabled them um, under the leadership of a bandit rebel chief called Manuel Lozada to basically um, break away from the state of Calisco and kind of declare their independence um, as this kind of autonomous peasant republic, um, which is the birth of Nayarit as a, a state as we know it today. Um, and then more recently, um, those plantations that you mentioned um, have been a source of seasonal work for people throughout the Sierra. Um, during the dry season, when there's no agriculture possible in the Sierra, or at least until opium arrived um, in the 1980s, um, people would, would leave the, the, you know, the wet season agriculture and then the dry season, which is traditionally the time when um, 
a lot of the rituals are carried out around which politics revolves um, and also family structure and all the rest of it. Um, they would leave the Sierra and work for money on the coast and the tobacco plantations. And um, yeah, and that was a major source of, of kind of cash um, for people who had not a hundred years before really needed as much, but with kind of modernization came the need for you know, currency. Um, more recently, um, well, the, the Nayarite don't have as much need or didn't have as much need um, to go to the coast anymore because um, they got their money from growing opium and people would, uh, you know, from the coast would actually go to them to sell stuff directly to them in the Sierra, los falloqueros. Um, the Wiraritari, on the other hand, um, who remains sort of more plugged into the kind of ritual pilgrimage stuff involving the coast. Um, and so, um, and were less plugged into the opium economy. And so continued to especially go to San Blas um, to, on, on a pilgrimage to the, um, the big um, religious site there that they have. Um, and they would also often work on the tobacco plantations um, and sell kind of artesania to the tourists. Um, so there was never a massive kind of conflict between um, people in the, on, on the coast and the Sierra. There was always kind of, you know, they worked together. Um, meanwhile, 1940 as a date, well, one, I mean, if I'd kept going any further, the book would have been so long, um, nobody would have wanted to read it. Two, um, just because the kind of conventional dating of the revolutionary period is often sort of 1910 to 1940. Um, and I set out originally to work on this period. Uh, yeah, it just made sense to kind of go with the periodization um, that people had already kind of set up for the revolution um, in order to then challenge some of the basic kind of narratives about that period. Um, I felt like I was doing enough challenging of a lot of the things happening, uh, a lot of the common kind of narratives of that period to then not also need to challenge the periodization of the revolution and make the argument um, that, you know, actually into the 50s or even the 60s, there's stuff that could still be classed as revolutionary going on or that actually maybe the revolution ended uh, in 1938 when Cárdenas is forced to do more compromising with, you know, conservative elites. Um, I hope that one day I will do a, a volume two, um, which will maybe take this story onwards um, into the 50s and 60s and 70s, because there's all sorts of amazing stuff happening in that period too. Um, and that's even before we get into the era of the narco granayar. Um, but, you know, I'll probably wait for the archives to open up a bit more and for certain other archives that are apparently open, but so badly organized um, to just get a bit more organized I'm talking to you archives in Nayarit. Great. Now, um, there are a few more questions, but we, we're, we're sort of over time now. Um, so I don't know if you want to take them or you... I mean, I've got nowhere to go, so I'm very <laughs> happy to... Okay, to well, I mean, people can always um, sign off if they, they've got... So okay. let's take them. Um, a question from Andreas, uh, who says, you spent so much time on the ground for this book. How did your personal experiences in the Gran Nayar inflect your perspective on the historical events you write about? And then there's a hand up from Raquel Meyer. Do you want to ask your hand? Uh, ask, ask your question, sorry. 
Yes, I'd like to. Uh, can you hear me? Yeah. Um, I would like to know how do you benefit from your research and how does the indigenous communities also benefit or not from your exercise in, in their territories? If you gave some kind of feedback to them, um, that's it. Okay. Um, yeah, okay, two good questions. Um, well, I think I've talked a little bit about already about how my... Um, fieldwork experiences helped me to understand dynamics that were hinted at in the documents, but didn't, you know, weren't really quite expressed. But, um, but, you know, to sum all that up, I'd say, you know, understanding the landscape was really important to understanding the way that people moved within that landscape historically. Understanding the continued importance of ritual um, in terms of politics and kind of everything else, you know, cosmovision. Um, was really important to understanding why people behaved politically the way they did. Um, and also, I haven't quite mentioned this, but talking to local people and getting their stories of the period gave me lists of names, you know, of people who were like active back then, you know, the local caciques, um, who I would then, I'd go and look for their names in the archives, um, which, you know, led me to discover all sorts of things that if I hadn't, you know, randomly met their grandson at a fiesta and it told me about, you know, how his granddad, um, you know, was big in the game back in the day. And one time he, you know, shot three people at this fiesta and, you know, oh, some people say he's bad, but we always say he's good. And then I'd be like, oh my God, you know, this must, there must be a record of, of this. Um, and I'd go and, you know, look for shooting in this, you know, village um, around about this time and often I'd find something which would then kind of shed light on an event I hadn't known had happened and then I would take that information and go back to the Sierra and ask more about you know this series of telegrams that appeared to be linked to his grandfather's murder of somebody and you know in that way you kind of bit by bit piece together from both archival and oral sources a kind of more complete history. Um, as for what people in the Sierra are getting from my research, well, it's a really, really important question. Um, and it's one that local people are quite aware of because um, I had to go to great pains to explain that I wasn't yet another anthropologist. Um, because a lot of people, particularly anthropologists or self-proclaimed anthropologists, have gone to the Sierra, have taken a load of information from the Sierra, They've gone and done whatever with it, and then they've never been seen again, which um, has really, really annoyed people because it's potentially fairly annoying having to like answer the incessant questions of some, you know, yet another outsider, and then you see nothing from it. Well, you know, that's annoying. So in every community that I worked in, um, I had to make a case for them allowing me to be there and do any work there in the first place. Um, each case was slightly different. Um, in general, I basically made deals with um, all of the, you know, the, the traditional authorities as in the, the sort of the councils of elders and the communal governor, and sometimes also the agrarian authorities who are um, in those communities that one, you know, I would translate the book and bring copies to people. Um, you know, like one copy per community at very least, and also copies for communal museums, 
um, which there are there are in some of these communities, um, because people are, especially older people who I was interviewing, were quite concerned that as the importance of the written word kind of grows with modern education um, and the, the the arrival of television um, in the Sierra um, as well, you know, people aren't listening to the narratives of the uh, traditional historical narratives um, and you know, some of the elder people want these things to be written down um, because they think that then the younger people might pay some attention to them. Um, similarly, some people were just quite up for talking to me because they'd never had an outsider um, or even, you know, people from the local area ever show any interest in their histories. Um, and I guess they were quite flattered that somebody thought you know, from outside their family thought that these things were valid and interesting enough to have come all the way from wherever the hell this guy's from, because nobody knows where England is. Um, and so, you know, there was a little kind of ego boost, I'm, I'm sure, for, for certain people. Um, I also, you know, in some communities, um, I, um, you know, would try and find document, particular documents in the archives for them. Um, although sometimes then that involved getting involved in, um, you know, communal intercommunal conflicts over land. So then sometimes that became a bit um, awkward. Um, but I never found it. I, I did try and find a few key documents, um, but I never had much luck. Um, I did find just interesting documents that weren't going to win anyone's land battle. Um, and I'd always bring copies of these documents to the Sierra and then the elders would sit there for hours pouring over them and being like, ah, it's so-and-so's granddad. Like he wrote this one. Um, but yeah, I think the most important thing is that I'm going to bring the book back so that the information that I've taken from these communities um, stays in the communities. Um, yeah. I also bought, uh, you know, bought food and an incredible amount of beer um, for hundreds of people over the years, um, which was, you know, that was part of the research, um, this sort of sponsoring party after party. Um, and I think, you know, I, I to, to an extent, made a lot of people laugh by just being this really stupid, know-nothing gringo who's like so dumb, we have to like teach him everything. Like he doesn't know how to ride a horse. Like, wow, where do these guys come from? And how is it that they run the world? Like, um, so yeah, I, I, you know, I hope that I um, provided some comic relief as well, um, just by being a, a, a silly outsider. Um, so yeah. How worthwhile all of that is, I don't know. Um, but it was it was enough for people to allow me to um, hang about anyway. Um. Okay, thanks, uh, Nat. I think we'll we'll uh, draw it to a close there. Um, so thank you very much uh, to Julie Gibbings and also to Ben Smith for their comments, and thanks to uh, everyone for joining us and for your questions, but uh, special thanks to, to Nat uh, for his book and for um, launching it here this evening with us. Uh, and please, if you can, join me in um, thanking him in the traditional way. Which is
Thank you all for coming. Um, thank you, Paolo and uh, Julie and Ben for taking the time to have a bit of a read and uh, all of the fantastic comments. And I'm, I'm very honored um, that you were up for taking part um, and that you've been so nice about the whole thing. Great, buy his book. <laughs> all right, bye bye everyone. Bye. bye.